That's a very nice one. This morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles together with me and turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 34 to 38 this morning, and it's a pretty fundamental chapter, a pretty fundamental passage in the entire Bible. Uh, This is a text that's recorded in Matthew and Luke as well as Mark. It's a monumental occasion in the ministry of Jesus Christ when He lays out very clearly, Jesus that is, what He expects of those who would be His disciples. If you're looking for a title for this morning's message, I've, I've chosen the basics of discipleship. Not in that these are the basic things you need to do, but these are the basics that go into what it means to be a disciple. If you've been with us as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together, you've noticed that Mark's Gospel is pretty unique compared to the others. Uh, Matthew has a lot of references to the Old Testament and primarily records a lot of what Jesus says. The reason is, is because he's writing to a Jewish audience, presenting Jesus as the Messiah to a bunch of people that are biblically literate as far as the Old Testament goes. And that's why, for instance, if you're going to convince a Jew that Jesus is a Messiah, uh, the first thing you're going to have to prove is, to begin with, that he has a rightful claim to the throne of David. That's why it starts with a genealogy that proves that that's exactly what Jesus has. Next thing you're going to have to do is prove that he fulfills Old Testament promises. That's why there's quotes in Matthew 1 and 2, etc. And then a lot of the rest of Matthew's Gospel, even the arrangement of it, is uh, for that kind of an argumentation presenting Jesus as a Messiah to a Jewish audience. When you look at, at Luke-Acts, that two-volume work of Luke's, you'll notice that he's got a lot more of an historical approach. He talks about a lot about what Jesus did. He, ta- he records a lot of what Jesus says, and he pretty much puts it in largely chronological order. When you look at John, he's going to have a whole bunch about what Jesus said, and it's, and, and it's tied to major events, major miracles that he did. But when you look at Mark, Mark is written to a Roman audience. I'd say it's uh, very similar to most of the contemporary American audience. We're looking for action movies. We're looking for events. We're looking to see what, prove to me who Jesus is by largely showing me what he did. And so that's why there's a lot less dialogue recorded and a lot more activity recorded in Mark's gospel. And as you, as you look at the record of what Jesus did as you go through the gospel of Mark, you'll see that the things that are recorded uh, are evidences that the things that Jesus did, He did very purposefully. Now, it's not an effort to record every miracle Jesus ever did. Uh, as John points out, that, that would not be possible. Jesus did so many miracles, they were essentially countless for those that were with Him and watched Him. But, for instance, if you look at Mark chapter 1, uh, you don't need to turn there, I'll just remind you, when He when he cleanses the leper in Mark 1 and verse 40, you remember that first of all, he does it by touching him. Why does he do that? Well, because anybody that touched a leper became unclean. According to Old Testament law, then you were separated for a week from everybody and you went through all the rituals and all that stuff. Well, Jesus heals a leper, cleanses a leper by touching him, showing that that 
unlike everybody else, when anybody else touches a leper, they become unclean. When Jesus touches a leper, the leper becomes clean. And then he also was very deliberate in telling the leper to go to, not tell anybody, go down to Jerusalem, have the priests examine you, and then present the offering for having been cleansed by God. And that would have made the, the whole miracle that Jesus did a testimony to the priests there in Jerusalem that what Jesus did was a divine miracle. Now, obviously, the man didn't follow through with it, but you can see that Jesus not only did miraculous things, he did them very purposefully. Likewise, in Mark chapter 2, you'll remember when the, the four guys lower their friend down uh, into the house, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and everybody goes, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus asked the question, well, what's it easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And the answer, obviously, is, well, they're both really easy to say, and neither one of them can be done unless you're God. That's why he says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on the earth, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home, and the guy does. That whole event was orchestrated from the point the guy is lowered through the roof. The whole event is orchestrated by Jesus, and he does what he does and says what he says purposefully. In Mark chapter 4, I'm skipping some stuff here, but in Mark chapter 4, when you get to the parable, uh, or Jesus beginning to teach in parables, and it starts with the parable of the soils. The, the disciples asked him, well, why are you teaching in parables? And uh, as soon as he's alone, Mark 4.10, his disciples come to him and they ask him about the parables, and basically, why are you now teaching in parables? And he says to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In other words, I've given them, I've spoken plainly and openly to them for an extended period of time. They've seen countless miracles and they have not responded in repentance and faith. And so God does not cater to unbelief. He doesn't make the message easier to understand. He makes it harder to understand and begins now to teach in parables so that he is still instructing his disciples, but that the masses that have had it clear are now getting it blurred. Because God doesn't cater to unbelief. Everything that Jesus does is purposeful. When we get to Mark chapter 6, and again, I'm, I'm skipping a bunch, but in Mark chapter 6, as he begins to turn his attention to training the twelve, he knows that his time is approaching. The hour of him offering himself up as the once-for-all sacrifice nears. And so the need to prepare his disciples for their ministry that's going to take on after that is at hand. And so, you'll recall when we went through in Mark chapter 6, his feeding of the 5,000, and then when he walks uh, on the water and is intending to pass them by, but they didn't learn the lesson from the feeding of the 5,000, and they aren't learning the lesson while they're out on the Sea of Galilee, so he gets it. They think he's a ghost, so he gets in the boat and sits with them and takes them the rest of the way to shore. In Mark chapter 8, where we left off last time, you'll remember that Jesus now has done a couple of miracles. He's moved into northern Galilee and north above Galilee. 
And he's doing that purposefully to keep things from coming to a head before the Passover when he's going to offer himself up as the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice for our sins. And again, in an effort to prepare his disciples for the future, he begins by doing a couple of miracles. In fact, a two-staged miracle of, of giving sight to a man that's blind. He asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And most people recognize him as being from God. This must be one of the Old Testament prophets. This must be John the Baptist back from the dead. The miracles that he's doing, the actions that he's taking, the messages that he's proclaiming. It's very clear he's from God, but exactly who? Most people can't put a finger on it. Then he says, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anybody because here is what is in store for us. I am going to go to Jerusalem. In fact, you can take a look at Mark 8 and look at this. Verse 31, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, must be killed and after three days rise again. Guys, we're heading to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen to me when we get there. This is the way things are going to play out. And you remember Peter and the rest of the twelve, they receive it really well. Well, that goes perfectly in line with Isaiah 53. Let's go to it. Uh, how can we help you? No, not so much. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. It's not going to be that way. That's not what we're expecting. That's not the way we read Psalm 2 where the, where the Son of God is going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. That's not what it goes with what we've seen as far as all the Old Testament promises that, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, I subject all of your enemies beneath your feet. This doesn't make sense. Jesus says, can't be right. You, you've got it wrong. Sounds a bit audacious, does it not? It sounds a bit prideful. Jesus, you're wrong. That's not how it's going to play out. And Jesus turns it right around and rebukes Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Notice that our text picks up right on the heels of this. Jesus has been very clear with His disciples, this is what His future is. This is what He has come to do first. And that is to offer Himself up as the once for all sacrifice for our sins. You know, if you think about this, it's amazing to me the grace of God and the, and the convictions and commitments of God to fulfill His perfect promises. Christ's perfect commitment to being obedient to the Father. I mean, I would have caved in something like this. Okay, you know what, Peter? I've had it. Fine. We'll do it your way. I'll just go to Jerusalem and set up my kingdom. And then when you die, there's no, there's no sacrifice for your sins. And you can be in the kingdom for a little while. And then you can still uh, answer for your, all of your sins. Because certainly you don't deserve any of the grace that I've, I'm trying to uh, obtain for you. I mean, that would be my attitude. And yet Jesus simply rebukes him. You understand, God's plan is to establish His kingdom. There is a future for Israel because God promised one. 
Christ is coming back, literally, physically, and bodily to fulfill all the promises that He's made in the Old Testament. That's going to happen. It's going to happen because it's written in the pages of Scripture. And God's Word is eternally good. It's going to happen. Before we're done, uh, if there's time, we're going to look at Revelation uh, 19 when Christ comes back and sets up His kingdom. We'll also look briefly at Revelation 20 when you get to the end of the, the thousand years of Christ's kingdom here on this earth when He brings all of creation to an end and all mankind stands before the great white throne and the books are going to be opened and everybody is going to be judged according to their deeds except for those whose name is written in the book of life. Now, you want to know what, why those names that are written in the book of life do not stand before the great white throne? Because all of their sins were paid for at the cross. If Jesus doesn't come first and offer Himself up as the sacrifice for our sins, if He does not become sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in Him, then we still must answer for our sins no matter how many good deeds you do. No matter how sincere your commitment to change and your sorrow over what you've done is, no matter how sincere it is, the fact of the matter is God is holy and righteous and just and He must punish every sin. The only way anybody other than God has a place in the kingdom is if God first comes and pays for our sins so that His righteousness is maintained and our sins have been dealt with. Now, did Peter understand this at this point? No, he has no concept. None of the apostles did. Nobody understood it that way. This is why Jesus doesn't use the term Messiah because Messiah, by this point, Messiah has so much of an emphasis in people's thinking and hopes and beliefs that the only thing they can see is the establishment of the kingdom when He comes. Well, the only way any people can be in the kingdom is if He first dies for us. Isaiah 53 has to be fulfilled before the end of Isaiah 53 can come to pass. So Jesus now, having instructed the twelve very purposefully on what the future is, even though they don't connect the dots, why does He tell them in advance? Well, you remember, we've, we've taken a look at this many times through the years. Uh, I think even recently in the context of our evangelism messages these last few weeks, when you get to the resurrection of Christ, the disciples are really difficult to convince. It's difficult to convince them Christ has risen from the dead, right? What do the angels say when the women get to the empty tomb? What are you doing here? Because didn't he tell you this is the way it was all going to play out? And they go back and they tell the disciples... And then when Jesus shows up in the upper room and all the disciples are there, didn't I tell you this was going to happen, that everything written in the Scriptures had to be fulfilled? Okay, He tells them in advance as yet another evidence that when it happened, it was always God's plan that would play out this way. Listen, this is the whole point of prophecy. Prophecy is not given to us so that we can predict what's going to come. Prophecy is given so that after it happens, you can look back and go, yeah, it really was God that did it because it's what He said He was going to do. Most of the time when people study prophecy, they look at prophecy and try to figure out what the future is. 
The reason for prophecy is so that after it happens, you can look back and go, yep, this was God. Now, Jesus has instructed His disciples for the first time in Mark's Gospel on what His immediate future is when He gets to Jerusalem. That is, He's going to be betrayed and offered up as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, but also that He will rise again the third day. Now, He gathers, verse 34, the crowd together with His disciples to give them some very clear instructions. And this is just as deliberate of an exercise by Jesus as all the rest of the things that He's been doing up to this point. Now He's going to talk to the the multitudes that are following Him. To the many people that that are impressed by Him. To these very people who say, well, He must be John the Baptist back from the dead. He must be one of the Old Testament prophets. Or or like the Old Testament prophets, He is definitely from God. And some of them even believing that He must be the Messiah. And the majority of them either desiring to be His disciples or already uh, believing themselves to be His disciples. This is the audience that Jesus speaks to together with the twelve. And this is the context of the message that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is going to address the subject of discipleship with His disciples and with the multitudes that include a bunch of people that want to be His disciples and a bunch of people that believe they already are His disciples. And what He's going to tell them very directly is what He expects from those who are His disciples. If you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, or put in today's terms, because the term Christian uh, didn't get coined until you get into the middle of the book of Acts. Okay, It, It was just the word for disciples to begin with, to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. It got coined as Christians originally as a, as a negative badge. Uh, and uh, through, um, through the centuries, it has become the moniker, the name that we go by. We identify ourselves as Christians, little Christ, those devoted to Christ. If you want to be a Christian, this, these are the basics of discipleship. This is what Jesus expects from you if you want to be one of His disciples. And since Chuck is not here, I went ahead and alliterated today's message. I have two C's for you. We'll look at the conditions of discipleship and the considerations for discipleship. If you prefer, we can talk about the cost of discipleship and the considerations for discipleship. Still both C's. Um, If you want to be a disciple in a way that actually results in eternal life, You need to meet the conditions of discipleship. And if these seem pretty severe, I'm going to share with you the considerations of discipleship that ought to help you understand the gravity of the decision you're making. And as we go through this text this morning, I hope that two things happen. Well, maybe three things. First of all, I hope you'll be able to discern your own standing before God, whether or not you really are a Christian. And for those of you that are, that maybe aren't as faithful of a Christian, aren't as devoted of a Christian as you have been in the past, maybe you'll be reminded of what you signed up for. 
and be encouraged to press on toward the upward call. And for all of us, especially given the context of an evangelism, our fall evangelism campaign, I hope that as we walk through here, as you encounter people in your daily life that think they're Christians, as we walk through this passage, this will become one of those places in Scripture that you know really well, and you know well enough that you can take somebody that thinks they're a Christian and you can call them on it. And you can help them see, well, if you say you're a Christian, you understand what Jesus said about being a Christian, right? As far as how devoted you are to Him. You know, I've been, I, I've been on numerous doorsteps in living rooms and family rooms at kitchen tables. Had people in the office, met people on the street and in parks and wherever. And I can't tell you how many, pe- how many times I've met somebody that says they're a Christian and I say, well... Uh, where do you go to church? I go to such and such a church. Well, what was the what did the, your pastor preach on uh, this past Sunday? Oh, we weren't there this past Sunday. Oh, okay. Well, what about the previous Sunday? Oh, well, we weren't there any. Well, when was the last time you went to church? Well, I guess it must have been. When was COVID again? Okay. So, uh, you know, just because you identified yourself with Christ at some point, does that make you a Christian? You know, from an American cultural perspective, a lot of people believe having gotten baptized as a baby, having having walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or gotten baptized as a kid, having attended a church for a period of time or whatever, that that's what makes you a Christian. What I want you to see more than anything this morning is that Jesus has a massive following. He is the most popular guy in Israel. He's also the most hated guy in Israel. But he's the most popular guy in Israel because of what he says and because of what he does and all the miracles that he's doing. And everybody recognizes him from God as from God. Some people even believe him to be the Messiah. Right? You can believe the right things about Jesus. You can believe He's from God. You can believe the message and all of that kind of stuff. But does that really make you a Christian? Jesus has a loyal following of multitudes. We've seen Him try to separate Himself from the multitudes and people go all the way around the sea to catch up to Him. Right? What is it that Jesus requires of a person if they really are going to be one of His? If you really are going to be a Christian, what is required? Well, let's start by looking at the conditions of discipleship. And again, keep in mind here that Jesus is speaking to a bunch of people who are already following Him and who are already identifying themselves with Him as His disciples. Keep in mind that He also just laid out for the twelve apostles what's in store for Him personally. And He's laid out that this is very different than what they expect. And I dare say what Jesus is going to say to these people who are following Him, He's going to lay out what He expects of them as disciples, and that's going to be very different from what they expect as well. There are three conditions of discipleship according to Jesus. Look at verse 34. He summons the crowd with His disciples. So that's who the audience is. And He says to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, If anyone wants to be my follower, my disciple, in today's terms, if anybody wants to be a Christian, and I want to just point out a couple of quick observations here. Notice it starts with, if anyone wishes to come after me. 
Notice that this applies not just to those who are going to be pastors, not just to those who are apostles, not just to the twelve, but to anyone and everyone. I don't care who you are. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you want to be a Christian, this applies to you. If anyone wishes to come after me, this is what he must do. Secondly, notice it's got to be what you want. It's not what somebody else wants for you. It's not going to happen unless you actually want it. It is on you. The onus is on you to want to be reconciled to God, to want to be a follower of Christ, to want to come to Him and follow Him. It's got to be an exercise of your own personal desire and will. And finally, the last phrase, if anyone wishes to come after me, it's a desire to be one of his followers. It is a desire to actually be his disciple. In contemporary terms, to be a Christian. And again, he's talking to people who many of them would have considered themselves already his disciples. And this is, this is, as we get through the seriousness of this exhortation that Jesus gives, I want you to keep in mind this is not the first time Jesus spoke seriously to the multitudes. Um, in, in Luke 6, after the Sermon on the Plain, which would have occurred in the same general time frame as when he, at the beginning of his ministry, did the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't what? Do what I say. See, there's no point in you calling me Lord if you're not going to obey me. That's just a superficial acknowledgement. It's saying, uh, it's, it's, it's having your parents say, are you going to clean up, you're going to clean up your room this afternoon and, and then when we get home, we'll go out for dinner for pizza like you want. Okay, son. Okay, daughter. Sure, mom. Sure, dad. And then you don't do it. Sure, mom and sure, dad meant what? Nothing as evidenced by your unwillingness to actually do it well jesus lays it out very clearly here summoning the crowd together with his disciples says if anyone wishes to come after me here's what he has to do these are the requirements threefold he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me these three conditions are as follows you ready number one he must deny himself. That means he must be ready to submit to Christ. If you want to be a Christian, you have to be ready to submit to Christ. You have to be ready to submit to Christ. He must deny himself. This is a word that uh, you've heard me use a few times, so I'll go ahead and use it here, the Greek word. Arneomai is a Greek word that means to say no. This is a strong form of that word. This is the strongest way to say no. It's aparneomai. It means to reject, to emphatically deny something, to strongly refuse to do something or denounce something. Absolutely, positively, no, no way, no how. Not happening. Okay? I, I am not doing that. It's like when I said I am absolutely positively no way, no how getting a dog. 
And now I have three of them in the house. Okay, but I said no. I think apparently my power is limited. In any case, uh, this is the same word that's used to describe what Peter does in the high priest's courtyard. When he's asked by a servant girl, don't you know Jesus? I, I absolutely positively know. Okay, the strongest possible denial. That's the word that Jesus uses. But notice what he says. You have to deny, you have to absolutely positively say no to whom? He doesn't say the world. He doesn't say to sin. He doesn't say to evil. He says to what? To yourself. This isn't about saying no to sin. This isn't about saying no to the culture, to your peers. This is about saying no to you. What does it mean to deny yourself? How many of you have ever been on a, di on a diet? Some of you guys have, have, were into wrestling in uh, your younger days. I got a couple of nods. Uh, and you had to make weight. And some of us, myself included, have noticed our pants get a little snug. And so, okay, it's time to say no to those chocolate chip cookies. Okay, that's what it means you say no to you. But this isn't saying no to sweets, saying no to uh, a snack. This is, this is saying no fundamentally to yourself in the strongest way possible, which means I'm saying yes to you, Jesus, and I'm saying no to me. This is submission at its most basic, fundamental level. Here you are rejecting or refusing or denying yourself. You are no longer in charge of your life. You are submitting yourself to Jesus Christ and to His authority. Some call this lordship salvation. I don't like that term. Because apart from submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. I don't, I don't need an adjective to describe actual saving faith. And in the Greek here, this is an urgent summary instruction, meaning that this is a definitive action that you have to do in your own heart and your mind. You come to that place where on a definitive level, you say, I say no to me and I say yes to you, Jesus. You want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what you got to do? You got to deny yourself. You got to submit yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. This is just like what Paul says in Romans 10. Confess Jesus as Lord. What does it mean to confess Him as Lord? To acknowledge Him as sovereign, as your master. Now, in an American cultural context, the idea of lordship, the idea of a master-servant, master-slave, master-subject relationship grates on our, our personal freedoms and our autonomy. Well, the fact of the matter is, we're not talking about being in subjection to a tyrannical human here. We're talking about being in subjection to the one who created us in his image. And as a side note here, denying yourself is not some trivial ascetic self-denial. 
You know, like what the monks did and hermits did, where they're, okay, so I'm not going to have anything that's good to eat. I'll just, I'll survive on gruel and water and I'll separate myself from society and I'll, I won't wear any soft clothes. In fact, I'll purposely wear rough clothes. And I think, we're not talking about that. We're talking about fundamentally submitting yourself to Jesus Christ and His authority. You want to be my disciple? You say no to you. You're no longer the owner of your life. Secondly, you not only have to be ready to submit to Christ, you have to be willing to die for Christ. That is submitting no matter what it costs you. Notice he says, if anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. I have... um, (laughs) I've heard some pretty creative answers to the question, well, what does it mean to take up your cross? I don't even have to go to commentaries to get good, ridiculous ideas for this. I've experienced them in sharing the gospel with people. I was up the street uh, one time. Uh, I've been in town a few times. I've been all over the place. I've talked to people and said, well, what do you think it means to take up your cross? I had one guy tell me, well, it's living with my wife. I've had numerous wives tell me, I guess it's putting up with my husband. I've heard heard moms say, well, I guess it's dealing with my kids. Lots of people point to their health issues, uh, their circumstances, their financial condition, the government, whatever. When I say the word cross today in this room, what do you think of? What's the first thing? Come, right, Christ. Okay? Now, remember, when Jesus says these words, when He has just told His disciples that He's going to die, do they think of cross? Do they think of Christ when they think of cross? Do they think of Christ when they think of death? That's the furthest thing from their mind. The history books, including Josephus, tell us that during the time frame of Jesus' earthly life, okay, there were roughly 30,000 crucifixions done by the Romans in the, the general area of Israel. Okay? 30,000 crucifixions. I have a really sharp intern. Okay? I mentioned it to him this week. And, and, and Mike isn't just good at uh, plumbing. He's, he's apparently pretty good at math because he immediately went, that's like three a day for 30 years. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. When Jesus says you've got to be willing to, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross, when he uses the word cross and says you've got to take up your cross, what is everybody's immediate thought? They do not think of the cross of Christ. They do not think of, of the glories that God has brought to us through the cross. There is no positive association with the cross when Jesus uses this expression when he originally says it. There is no thought of greatness or of pleasure or of joy or glory associated with this instrument of torture, execution, and death. Do you know the only thing people think of? A horrific death. Most of the people would have seen someone crucified or heard firsthand from somebody who had seen a crucifixion. 
multiple crucifixions. Crucifixion was invented by the Carthaginians as a way to, when you, when you beat your enemy, when you conquer them on the battlefield, you take the bodies and you hang them up on, uh, and you post them on display and hang them up naked and defeated and say, you, you, you go to war with us and this is what we'll do with you. And the Romans saw that and went, oh, oh, what a great idea. Let's use this as a form of capital punishment. But let's, let's, let's nail them up there alive and watch people, let everybody watch them die. And we'll do that with anybody, now, not to a Roman citizen, obviously, because that's just frightening. But to anybody that's not a Roman citizen that rebels against us, so you, 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 you want to get into insurrection? You want to tr- try to rebel against our empire? Fine. We will come in there with legions and we will crucify all the leaders and anybody that had a part in it and you will all learn your lesson that will be your fate and we'll leave the bodies up there for a little while afterwards so that you get the point okay that's crucifixion jesus says you want to be my disciple you got to deny yourself and you got to take up your cross you got to be willing to die you got to make the decision that yes i'm willing to die Luke includes the word daily. Doesn't mean that you have to be willing to die every day, but on a daily basis, this is, this is your commitment. Today I'm willing to die. Today I'm willing to die for Christ. Today I'm willing to die for Christ. My, this, my life is not mine. I'm going to live it for Christ no matter what it costs me. You're familiar with Philippians 1.21? Where the Apostle Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You want to know where he gets that idea? From what Jesus says right here. You want to be my disciple? You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and what's the third one? Follow me. You know, it's really interesting. When you look at this in the Greek, those first two commands refer to urgent summary action. They refer to making a decision and sticking to it with the rest of your life. But the third one is continuous. Okay, it's not a decision to follow. It's a practice of following. You've got to be ready to submit to Christ. You've got to be willing to die for Christ. And you've got to be committed in a lasting way to living for Christ. Follow me. What's implied in the word follow? That Jesus is in the front and you are behind Him. Where He goes, you go. What He tells you to do, you do. See how deny yourself fits with following Him? Okay, this is, this is what is required for discipleship. You want to be my follower? If anybody wishes to come after me, this, from Jesus' own mouth, is what is required. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. For the rest of your life. That's the call. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says it this way. He describes his own Christian life in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Paul goes through in Romans 12 
after doing 11 chapters of doctrine describing about how Christ died for us, and there's no condemnation for us because we're in Christ Jesus, because of what He did for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, I strongly encourage you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. That's your logical or reasonable or spiritual service of worship. That's the kind of a life that God calls you to live. When you recognize He died for you, then with all your heart, you spend the rest of your life living for Him. In obedience to Him, and submission to Him, willing to suffer anything for Him or for the sake of His name because of what He did for you and what He has secured for you in the future. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the basics of discipleship right there. A lot of people describe this as the cost of discipleship. That's accurate. The conditions for discipleship. That's accurate. I think it's just the fundamental basics of discipleship. Now, I can just ask you right now. Is is that what you've done? Have you come to Christ on his terms? Are you willing to submit to him no matter what it costs you? Are you willing to live with your wife as an act of worship to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do your very best at your job as an act of worship to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to to submit to your husband uh, as to the Lord in everything as an act of worship to Jesus Christ? Well, what about when he's wrong? Well, is he telling you to do something unbiblical? Oh, that's not fair. Actually, it's perfectly fair. It's righteous. It's what God expects. It's that simple. And if you're a Christian, you're committed to doing what God expects. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What about when she's unlovely? What about when she's crabby? What about when she's not submitting to me? Does Christ love us only when we're obedient? Hmm. God demonstrated His love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ said, I'll love you when you get straight. No. And this holds true in in our communication our desire a whole of our lives listen this is the this is fundamentally what it means to be a christian if you came to saving faith in jesus christ if you committed yourself to living for him those conditions have not changed those expectations have not changed if anybody wants to come after me he must deny himself Take up his cross. You say no to you, no matter what it costs you, even if it's your death in the most fearful and tragic and humiliating way imaginable. And you just keep on following me. That's what Jesus says is required. Many people today see submission as a bad or an evil word today. You get into the redefining of roles and identities and everything else. I think even logically the world is starting to see how ridiculous this is, but where would that kind of an idea come from? Because fundamentally, as sinners, we do not want to submit to our Creator. That's why submission is the foundation of the Christian life. 
It's the foundation of discipleship. It's the foundation of every right relationship. It's the foundation of the relationships within the Trinity itself. The Father was in perfect submission. Excuse me. The Son was in perfect submission to the Father. All the way to the cross. Everyone submits to something and someone. Wives to their husbands. Husbands to their responsibilities. And none of us do it perfectly. That's true. But we're eternally, count, eternally accountable to God for when we are not living up to what God expects of us. The only reason we're offended by submission is because we don't agree with God that His way is best or that He has a right to exercise authority over us. You want to know why submission, no matter what, and obedience in a life lived for God is the requirement of discipleship? Because salvation is a restoration of your relationship with God. And it is not a restoration of a relationship with God with Him as your peer. Or Him as your cosmic Santa Claus. Okay? Salvation is a restoration of a relationship of a sinner created in the image of God who spent his or her whole life up to now in living in open rebellion and defiance. Oh, I'm not as bad as... You know something? You're evaluating you by your own blinded, self-blinded standards. Have you ever told a lie, no matter how small? Have you ever done anything mean? no matter how seemingly insignificant? Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you? Well, you just committed, confessed to being a murderer, a liar, and a thief. Should I go through the rest? All of us, all of us fall short of the standards of God. All of us are fully deserving of God's eternal wrath. And He is God, we are not. He will always be God, and we never will be God or even little gods. You want to know what salvation is? God so loved the world that His one and only Son came into this world in order to die in our place and make it possible for us to be reconciled to Him. His invitation to mankind is, if you will turn from your rebellion against me, and you will come and recognize me for who I am in the person of Jesus Christ, you will accept my forgiveness... And come and to a restored relationship with me as your Lord and Savior and live the rest of your life for me, then I will forgive you of all of your sins. I will make you one of my children and I will have a place for you in the new creation. That's why it's called good news. The good news, the gospel, euangelion, literally means good news. The good news is instead of just leaving us to die and suffer for our sins as we deserve forever in a lake of fire, God made a way for us to be reconciled to Him. But here's the conditions. But if you want that relationship with God, you come to Christ on His terms, which are you say no to you no matter what it costs you, and you commit the rest of your life to living for Him. Now, you may be one of those people who is hesitant to come all the way to repentance and faith, to come all the way to saving faith. Maybe there's something you don't want to give up. Maybe there's a relationship 
Maybe there's a pet sin. Maybe there's an occupation, an ambition. Maybe you just won't, don't want to give up your Sundays. Maybe you like using filthy language. Maybe, maybe you have a bitter heart towards somebody or something and you're just not willing to let that go. Maybe that bitter attitude is toward God. Maybe you blame Him for your sin and your circumstances. Maybe it's a, a covetous desire. Whatever it is, you won't submit to God because of it. Maybe it's a set of traditions or beliefs that you grew up with. If I were to accept this as true and come to God on His terms, what am I saying about all of my family and friends and loved ones? Listen, I, I, I've worked through this issue. Okay? Listen, if this really is the gospel and I come in repentance and faith, what does that mean about all the people that I, all my family that I grew up with? Am I, am I really, am I really saying then that maybe some or many of those are lost? You know what? At the end of the day, this is an individual decision you have to make. Is the Bible true or not? I mean, that's fundamentally the question, is it not? Is the Bible true or not? Now, let me make it even harder for you. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Okay, you know what that means? According to Jesus, according to the Bible, and that's either true or you might as well throw the whole Bible away. And if it's true, Jesus has just said the only way to a right relationship with God, the only true way to a right relationship with God is through whom? Him. And what did Jesus say is required for you to have a relationship with Him? You come on His terms, which are deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Wow. Total commitment of my life to Jesus Christ. What if I don't want to give up my life? I've, I've had people very close to me. When I shared the gospel with them, I said, but I, I, I don't want to give away my life. I want to live my life. Okay, here's what Jesus has to say to you. Are you ready? I'm going to share with you the considerations for the discipleship. And there are just three that Jesus takes us through. The first one's very simple. Realize life is fleeting and temporary. That's something that's really true and you need to consider. Life is fleeting and temporary. Verse 35, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What did he just say? Okay, if you want to have your life for you, that's fine. You can have this life. And by the way, the word for life there is really soul. If you want to be who you are, and live as who you are in this life, go ahead. You're free to do that. God isn't going to make you come to Him. This is an invitation. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You want to live for you this life? Go right ahead. Just understand at the end, you're forfeiting it. Because there will be a time when you breathe your last. 
Maybe you'll live to be 30. When I was young, you know, I never thought I'd live to be 30. Now that I'm 60, I kind of wish I had. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I will say I've found aches and pains and joints I didn't know I had, but uh, I really, when I, when I was in my 20s, 30 seemed so far off. I mean, I played sports to the point where I wore out my body with no consideration for how hard it would be to get up and down these steps or to, to move my arm or reach off the top shelf because I wore out my shoulder playing racquetball and had surgery and all. I mean, listen, I, when you're young, you, seem, you, you, you feel immortal, right? You feel like, like you're going to live forever. You know something? You may live to be 60. You may live to be 90. You may live to be over 100. You know something? You will die. And so will I. You want to have this life for yourself here and now? Go ahead. Just understand you're choosing what is fleeting and temporary over what is eternal. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. You want to live forever? You want to be in a right relationship with God forever? Well, here's what it's going to cost you. Yeah, this life. But you're going to lose this life anyways. And frankly, this is where you get into the, you know, the, the paradox. It just seems like, you know, salvation is a free gift. All it costs you is everything. Well, how is it a free gift? I'll tell you how. Because if, like me, you work through, struggle through this decision and choose you want God more than anything else, when you have a right relationship with God, it won't take very long for, before you start to look back and go, wow, I gave up nothing. I gave up nothing about all those things that were such idols to my heart, such passions and desires and ambitions and dreams. And that was all futility. I, I, in my case, I, 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 I didn't play racquetball for a living. I wasn't good enough. But I was on the Coors Light Tour and I played a lot. I mean, a lot. And I was typically in the semifinals and finals every weekend. It was very rare weekend. I didn't come home with at least one trophy and a lot, uh, more than half of them were first place trophies. And I had three boxes. By the time I met my wife and shortly after that got saved, I had two or three boxes uh, of huge boxes, big packing boxes full of trophies from racquetball. I never put any of them up. I didn't care about any of them. Okay, I just love to compete and I love to win. And I still remember getting saved and seeing all those trophies and remembering some of those weekends and everything going, I wasted so much of my life pursuing something that I only really enjoyed for the drive, for, for you know, that few moments when everybody cheers and then you're standing up and you get your, your another polo shirt that says Coors Light on it and, a, and another, what, well, yippee-doo, okay, but 
But that was, that was what was so important. And then I get saved and I realize, you know what, I'm almost 30 years old and I've done nothing for God. You want to know what my life's all about now? I want my life to matter for God. I've had people, you know, when you start to get where you have no hair that isn't gray and most hair isn't there, people start asking you about retirement. Yeah, I have a retirement plan. It includes streets of transparent gold. Until then, I want to be right here doing what I'm doing because I want my life to matter because I've wasted so much of it. All those things that looked so important to me when I got saved, I realized they're all fleeting. They're temporary. They're meaningless. You want to save your life? Okay. You want to have your life, this life for you? Okay. But don't lose sight of this fact. You will lose it. There will be a day when you breathe your last and it'll be over. But if you lose this life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you give this life to Jesus Christ. You make this life about living and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. And you will find what life really is. And you will never know what life really is until you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. Second consideration. Life is not only fleeting and temporary. This offer is limited to this earthly existence. This offer is limited. Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These two verses are really powerful. Notice the question that Jesus asks. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What's the whole world refer to? Okay, I'll try to make it contemporary. You guys know who Elon Musk is? He's got a few nickels to his name. You know who Bill Gates is? Maybe you've heard of Donald Trump. Okay, I don't know who the really wealthiest people are. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's others. Let's take those three as a starter. Okay, and let's take... Uh, the owners of all the major sports franchises. We'll even throw soccer and whatnot in there, okay? Let's take uh, all the money of uh, all, all of the, 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 the uh, rich and famous, okay? We'll throw all those in there. Let's just say it's not just billions. Let's say it's trillions, quadrillion. At this point, we might as well just say zillions, Okay? I'm a, I'm, I'm a doctor. I can make up my own words, okay? So we just say zillions. You have zillions of dollars. You have more money than all of those famous people I just talked about put together. You are the most wealthy person on the planet. But we're talking about the whole world, right? So let's add in a few things. We just went to, where did we go? San Luis Obispo or whatever that was. And, and you said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a little retirement thing by the beach or whatever? Okay, you have one of those. But San Luis Obispo, I mean, every day's not beautiful there. So you're going to need one in San Diego. Oh, and Hawaii and the Bahamas and Rio de Janeiro. And who doesn't like Cape Town? You know, the Table Mountain and uh, Moscow and... Uh, China, a couple of really cool places in China where you can, one where you could see the wall from where you are, everywhere, any place, France, what is south of France in May, 
okay? You get one everywhere. Wouldn't that be cool? You guys ever see, so I'm gonna date myself here, but you ever see Lifestyles Rich and Famous and you can have a champagne bubble bath? Okay, what if you had all of that? You say, none of that interests me. Okay, so what does? What does? Every sports card, every sports car. Every, every craft. Okay, maybe I, I'm, not, I'm not impressed with stuff, but wouldn't it be cool to be able to play the guitar? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to play the violin? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to be a famous rock star, famous movie star, famous athlete, famous fighter pilot? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to, to fly an F-22 for the next 50 years, Steve? Yeah. Is it worth your soul? And, and it, it isn't flying cool? Okay, but is there any comparison with your soul? See, that's the point. What would it profit you if you could have everything that you could possibly want? Here it is. Now, none of us, none of us have anywhere near, even Barbara doesn't have anything near everything we want, right? So, what is it if you're not a Christian, what is it that is the price tag you put on your soul? If you're sitting here listening to me right now and you haven't given your life to Christ, what is it that's more important to you right here, right now, than living the rest of your life for Jesus Christ? Because that's the price tag you put on your soul. And it isn't everything, it's this relationship it's this sin it's this ambition it's this desire or this fundamental uh, commitment to being autonomous to not having to submit to God to not having to give away your life I'm going to hang on to it okay you want to hang on to it he'll let you just understand that's the price tag that you put on your soul what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what's a man going to give in exchange for his soul when you stand before the great white throne and the books are opened and you are found condemned because of every sin you've ever committed, and Christ doth doesn't wash that away for you, you've got to answer for it. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul right there? Nothing. You have nothing to give. That's it. This offer of an eternally right relationship with God through the personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross is a limited time offer. It's limited to this earthly existence. May I, uh, may I go from preaching to meddling here for just a second? Albert will be pleased that I did this for him. For those of you that have made that transaction, that have given your life away to Jesus Christ, that truth that it's a limited time offer ought not be something that you go, I'm glad I made the right choice. It ought to really fill you with that sense of concern for the people around you. That offer is limited to them. Are you not moved at all in your heart by a love and compassion for your fellow man? For the members of your own household? For your extended family? For your co-workers? For your neighbors? For the people that you meet on the street? Some people, there's a sin they hold on to. It's a relationship in others. It's an earthly desire, pursuit, career, hobby, achievement. They're kids. For others, it's material possessions. For others, it's power, prestige, or something else. For most, it's just fundamentally your autonomy. Whatever it is, 
That's the price tag you put on your soul. And the last consideration here is life is fleeting and temporary. The offer of salvation is limited to this earthly existence and eternal judgment is certain. And it will be Jesus Himself who personally renders the verdict against you. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. You want to know who is come, which of the three persons of the Godhead is going to come and judge the living and the dead? It is Jesus Christ Himself who died for us. When you look at Revelation 20 and you see the great white throne, I won't make you turn there, but I am going to read it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John says, and this is, the, is at the end of the kingdom. He says, I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. All of creation is gone now. It's all gone. It's just the great white throne and God sitting upon the throne in the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small. That is the important and the unimportant. Doesn't matter who you are, you're going to stand before Christ. And they were all standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. Why is the book of life opened? Because if your name is written in the book of life, if you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you're one of His. And so, His death on the cross pays for all your sins. So, the account is reckoned. It doesn't matter what's written in the book, because Christ's death covered all of that. That penalty has been paid by Him. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Notice, according to their deeds tells you what's written in those books. Everything you ever said, everything you ever did, everything you ever thought, every sin you ever committed. Every sin you committed by not doing what you should have done, not just the things that you did that were wrong. Most of us pay attention only to those times where we got caught or we feel guilty. God's got them all written down. And nobody escapes, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their what? Their deeds. Nobody escapes. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Everybody who's not, whose name is not in the book of life, they were held up for this point and then judged and cast in the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels. If anybody's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. Nobody escapes. You have nothing you can give in exchange for your soul at this point. If you didn't come to Christ in this life, there's no second chance. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. You know, in Jesus' time, you want to know, well, by the time you get to the apostolic era in the book of Acts, you know, you know what most people are afraid of? Being put to death for identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. The cost is very clear. Of the apostles, Peter and Andrew were crucified. James was executed by Herod. John was exiled to Patmos and then died of old age, and the rest of them were martyred in some capacity except for Judas who hanged himself because he really wasn't a Christian. Even the Apostle Paul was executed by Caesar. 
You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You read Eusebius's early church history. You see lots of people died for their faith in Christ. And when the apostles were threatened and persecuted, you will remember that they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Because they were not ashamed to be identified with him at that point. Peter did not deny the Lord after uh, after that night. When he saw the risen Lord from that point on, he lived in a life devoted to Christ. Not perfect, but devoted to Christ and in the end died for him. Yeah, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you everything. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and for the rest of your life, follow him. Because if you're ashamed to be identified with Jesus for who he is now, during this adulterous and sinful generation, during this generation when people worship anything, including themselves, and, and when the, the whole generation is characterized by sin, then you can count on the Son of Man Himself, Jesus Himself being ashamed of you when He comes in the glory of His Father together with His angels, and you can count on Him finding you eternally condemned and casting you into the lake of fire. Listen, this is, this is frankly, I think... A really positive message. So you talked a lot about hell and a lot about eternal condemnation, yes. But I talked about very directly and primarily about how you can be reconciled to God through Christ. And unlike what most preachers would do, I told you point blank what Jesus said. I'm not telling you you can have your best life now. I'm telling you the truth. You come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and things are very likely to get harder for you. You come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you everything, every sin, maybe all of your relationships. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, if a man loves father, mother, sister, brother, and me more than me, he's not worthy of me. Yeah, this is an exclusive commitment. But this is a commitment that if you make, you have an eternal right relationship with God forever and all of your sins are washed away, not just the past, but even the ones you commit now and all the way into the future until He transitions you into glory. Come to Christ. And if you're already one of His, then get busy sharing Christ with others. Because life is fleeting. This, this offer is limited. And eternal judgment is certain. Father, thank You so much for today. And for the clarity of your word. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your perfect love for us, which is demonstrated not only in the truth which, which, with which you preached about both the kingdom and your expectations of us if we're going to be a part of it. There's, there really is no wondering. We either have made this commitment or we have not. We either are following you or we are not. And we don't have to be confused and wondering about whether we're Christians. We're either committed or we're not. And thank you for dying for our sins because apart from you, there would be no way for us to be reconciled to you. Why you want a relationship with us is beyond me. Why you want a relationship with me is beyond me. But I rejoice in your love and your grace shown to us in Christ and pray you will help us simply to choose you, to live for you, and glorify you, looking forward to the day of your return. In Jesus' name, amen.